you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Right now in Fast, a sea change for streaming. The milestone just reached for the new generation of media watching and what it means for the legacy players. Plus, the rise in risks of single stock ETFs. Why the leverage way to play some of the most volatile stocks is gaining popularity. And are they a better bet than meme stocks? And a Kohl's crash selling Bed Bath & Beyond and another shakeup at Starbucks. The stock's making moves and we're watching the trades. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Steve Grasso. And we start off with streaming surge into TV superiority. The medium surpassing cable in July in terms of total minutes watched, according to Nielsen Research. Streaming seeing a nearly 23% year-on-year increase, while cable's viewership shrank nearly 9%. And the major players in the space are taking notice. The NCAA Big Ten Athletic Conference just signed a $7 billion deal with Fox, CBS, and NBC that includes eight college football games and dozens of college basketball games to be available exclusively on NBC's Peacock streaming service. So the script is officially flipped. Who are the winners? Guy. Hi, Melms. It's just the two of us here. It's just the two of us here. Oh, no, but we are. No, no, no. There, I'm obviously, I see Steve, I see Tim, I see Karen, I see everybody at the NASDAQ, I see all the crew. Here on the the desk. That's correct. It's It's nice. It's 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 intimate, as Mm. they say. You know, it'd be great to have a guy like Tom Rogers tonight to talk about this, but in lieu of him, I'll I'll start the conversation going. It's fascinating (laughs) that Netflix, which now trades at 20 times, 22 times next year's number, a number that I don't think anybody ever thought we would see is not universally disliked, but a lot of skeptics. But when it was trading at 60 times, everybody loved it. Netflix continues to win. And I got to be honest, you know, the last 40 or so dollars has caught me by surprise. But again, Reed Hastings figuring out. But I'll submit this as well. Disney, you mentioned the sports aspect of this. Disney, ESPN got the lifeline years ago when sports gambling was legalized. I said it then, I'll say it now. Now Disney is trading from a position of strength in what they can do with ESPN if they choose to. And I would submit at current levels, Disney is still too cheap, Milms. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see that streaming is winning, but there are also more streaming players. So one can argue that that piece of the pie is actually divided by many, 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 many more uh, people, Tim. So how do, you, how do you impute this on the valuation of a Disney, which you own, or Netflix, or some of the other streamers out there? which I also own and, and wildly competitive. And at some point, you know, there's different ways the, the analyst community is actually evaluating these stocks. Some are just doing discounted cash flow models uh, and doing it based upon subs. Some are doing it uh, on a, a function, uh, essentially a sales multiple, uh, at least in terms of Disney, their core streaming business, then uh, on an earnings multiple when you consider their core business. Just back to Netflix, though. I mean, you know, in this secular trend that we've been talking about for a long time, the death of linear TV, Netflix has been the first and remains the first at 7.7 percent of all streaming hours viewed of this new record for streaming. So um, one of the things that I I mentioned even on the day when Paramount announced is I I just think that the streaming businesses and the companies have have been ambushed uh, on some level by the market in a sense that the competitive landscape is so much so that there will not be rationalization in price. Um, So I I think we are going to get back to a place. Remember when content was trading at such a massive premium. Uh, But look, at some point, and we can 
talk to Tom about the, the dynamics of, of Hulu and Disney and Comcast and, you know, who, you know, what's the proper bundle and where are we? But um, to me, I think there's opportunity in these stocks right here. Yeah, I mean, we are seeing price increases, Karen, which implies that consumers, even in an inflationary environment, are willing to pay up for streaming services. And you would think that streaming services would have to keep prices very low and maybe even cut them in order to gain market share at this point. But they're not, which is a little bit surprising to me, at least. Well, one thing that's sort of interesting that a lot of the streaming players are also legacy players, right? So they're kind of eating their own, right? So you have... Uh, Paramount Plus, which actually, remember, is CBS Go, so that's CBS. You have Disney, which is ABC, and you have Peacock, which is NBC. So they're kind of, you know, I don't know which, I don't know which effect is happening more quickly to the bottom line, whether it's the declining legacy business or the growing streaming where all the costs seem to be dumped on. Um, I'm not really sure. So at the end of the day, half of the winners are the losers also. Um, which I guess sort of leaves Netflix sort of the best of the bunch, I think. Right, or maybe even a Paramount Plus. Although long Paramount. Yeah, yeah. Um, Grasso, how do you come? How do you come down on that? Because of that, I mean, if you're thinking that streaming is great and legacy TV is dying, as Karen points out, those two things coexist at many of these companies. Yeah. So if you let, let's let's start off with where guys start off. So Netflix, when you look at it, uh, it did shock a lot of people. It was trading way below the pandemic low. So you could make the case that it should have been trading below the, the slide from the pandemic, but it should not have been trading below the pandemic low. But after this recent run, we run into resistance. $250 is resistance in the name. That number comes from the slide that it took in, in that gap on earnings. You wouldn't want to be a buyer of Netflix right now it's had a great run off that bottom but you wouldn't be a buyer but why no one's mentioned this and maybe for good reason because the stock can't get out of its own way if streaming is up then shouldn't roku eventually recover the chart doesn't look great but most charts that are bottoming or have bottomed don't look great either roku looks to me like it's very close to that bottoming area so you like Roku here? Yeah, I mean, just based on how we opened the show, if you like streaming, it's hard for you. I own Disney, so uh, it, I would be there because it has a bunch of levers to pull. But Roku, when you look at the chart and the way you open the show, should seem to be bottoming if that's the way uh, the, the uh, environment is going for screen, streaming. No, I understand what Steve is saying in terms of the chart. When you look over the last couple of weeks, I think it was Moffitt Nathanson just downgraded the stock, $62 price target. Pivotal downgraded the stock two days before. So the problem with Roku, I mean, chart notwithstanding, the problem is they don't make any money. And I think in terms of valuation, despite the fact that the stock has gotten obliterated, you're still talking about a stock that at these levels is just too expensive, regardless of the metric you look at. If we, had play, if we play the game, oh, I, love games. I tell you about the company, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you tell me if it's defensive or not. Ah. I'll open the game to not just Guy here. Um, a, a service that everybody wants, they're increasingly spending more time on, they're willing to pay higher prices, even in this inflationary environment. Is that a defensive stock, Guy? What do you say? 
in this environment, that is a defensive stock. That is a defense. Yes. That is How, Netflix. No, but yes, I agree with that. Okay. And Netflix, again, you can make a compelling argument on valuation. So defensive, and you can argue the valuation is compelling. But there are other stocks equally defensive that mm-hmm. the valuation doesn't make sense. I think Roku might fall under that category. I don't know if I played the game right, but. No, that's go. about right. Karen, what do you think? I'm going to go with Guy. I mean, uh, I also, it's not in a vacuum, so there's a question of price. But even though I don't own Netflix here, it would lead me toward possible, lead me toward Netflix, although my book would say go with Paramount. As I do think that there is the possibility for consolidation, I don't think Netflix is a possible consolidator or consolidatee, whereas Paramount Plus could be. Mm-hmm. At the same time, all these streaming services are still pursuing this ad-supported model at a time when the industry is having a tough go of it um, for ads, Tim. So how does that sort of play into the scenario where consumers are, are spending more time streaming, but they may end up paying less and these guys may have to shift towards an advertising, um, you know, heavy advertising dependent model? That, that worries me about Netflix on some level. I, I think as they begin to assess other ways and, and uh, you, know, they, they, you know, they start talking about price points for an ad-supported model. I'm hearing $8. I'm hearing $9. Um, and I do think that the, the issue around the streaming companies is the competitive landscape that makes us question pricing power. Two years ago, we thought Netflix had all the pricing power in the world, and they passed that through uh, to their customers. I, I think what we're underappreciating, uh, you talk about the ad-supported model, we are underappreciating with Netflix their ability to draw back in the shared accounts and then possibly um, some new if you listen to Cowan's numbers they say there's probably 14 million shared accounts that they will begin to monetize again not 1899 a month but maybe three or four dollars an additional month and then that will also though lead to an additional one you know almost two million new subs that's the part of the Netflix story that I'm just surprised they're not being rewarded for rather than being punished for uh, the discussion that hey we're concerned about sub growth maybe we need to go to an ad supported model by the way that that doesn't put them in the penalty box I don't think that's addressing what's going on the consumer mm-hmm. is now willing to uh, you know this the streaming consumer is starting to consume product much in the way we did on linear TV. And that's the big surprise. We will watch ads, and it depends on the format. Well, listen, it's interesting to me, and I agree with Tim. It's interesting to me when I play the game remotely correctly, I get ridiculed. When Karen plays, I mean, she creates her own room. I mean, Karen I, did it. It's beautiful. Everything's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's, it makes me crazy. It's clear favoritism on the set of CNBC's Fast Money. And I'm putting my foot down. <laughs> It is what it is. Ah. Let's move on. (laughs) Joining us now for more on this is CNBC founder and Target Media Executive Chairman Tom Rogers. Tom, um, great to have you with us. I I think that the new data that came out just sort of reaffirms what we all knew about what was going on in the TV landscape. So I want to start off with you with how you think about the the, the media giants that have both parts of the business, the linear part of the business as well as the streaming part of the business, and how each should sort of weigh in thinking about the valuation? Well, it's a great uh, question, Melissa. Uh, Thanks for having me, and thank you for not putting me in the middle of the favoritism battle here. Um, I I think that uh, what Paramount uh, Plus and Peacock did in terms of being able to feed both the broadcast side of the equation and the streaming side of the equation is a very smart play. 
Uh, it's clear that linear television is increasingly becoming all about sports and news. It's why Fox is most birated of the traditional uh, media companies, because it is essentially a company now that is all about just sports and news. And on the streaming side, as we were talking about, that uh, advertising and is now going to be a critical part of all the streamers' business models. There's nothing that drives eyeballs like uh, uh, sports. And so they have a need to fuel that side as, as well. Uh, I think the, the fact of the matter is that uh, you uh, have to look at who lost here. And uh, I heard the conversation on uh, Disney and ESPN. Uh, to me, uh, the big loser here is, uh, is ESPN. It's interesting. I'll just say it now to get out of the way. Tom is a stud, so that's out of the way. But it's, it's one of those, we know these truths to be self-evident, number one. Number two, it was inevitable, I guess, but in October of last year, Netflix finally fell on hard times. Stock fell from 700 to 162. You know all about it. But can there be a rebirth here in Netflix? Because to the conversation we had, now it's done, you have valuation that's compelling, and the world seems to once again be lining up for everything that Reed Hastings is doing. I think it's inevitable that Netflix uh, recovers more and is ultimately viewed as the winner. Because what isn't being factored in sufficiently, uh, certainly in the case of Disney, but uh, most of the traditional media companies that are pushing into streaming, is just how difficult the decline of the traditional business is going to be, how cord cutting is accelerating, how ratings are declining. And while sports rights is certainly a good thing to help stabilize ratings, the fact of the matter is when you're paying that much more for rights, and you have diminished um, audience, uh, that uh, just squeezes margins against very tough conditions already. Netflix doesn't have to deal with any of that. And while people have focused on Netflix subscriber issues, they really don't have a subscriber issue. They reach 100 million households in the United States, more households than any cable or broadcast network has ever reached. Their issue, as you were discussing before, as Tim mentioned, is the monetization issue. How do you monetize 30 million homes that they're not getting paid for in that 100 million uh, household reach that they have? And I think as they figure that out, uh, you have uh, an awful lot of opportunity, not to mention the fact that the engagement they have at 30% of all connected TV audience viewing compared to Disney Plus at 5% just gives them uh, maybe not the pricing power people originally thought, but pricing power nonetheless when you have that much of the engagement share of the total streaming audience, which is now bigger than cable. Tom, um, or should I call you Stud, uh, as we look at the, the, the horse trading among some of the assets out there, let's talk about Hulu because this is fascinating when you think about the players involved. And, and actually, who necessarily would want Hulu's business? And there's some question as to why Disney would even want that business. But what do you think is going to happen there? Could Comcast turn around and, and, and be a buyer? Or is this asset going to Disney at some point for at least $24 billion or more? Well, I can make an argument for why each of them uh, could use it strategically. Uh, I think that uh, uh, it, it was the case that uh, there were different buying conditions when Netflix was, was at uh, 700. Disney, I'm sure, using Netflix as a yardstick would be much more interested in buying it when there's uh, a comparison of uh, Netflix at uh, 240. 
And uh, similarly, I'm sure Comcast doesn't like the idea of selling it when the, the leading comp is, uh, is where it is. Um, I, I think the thing that really has to be focused on with Hulu is uh, it is the leading advertiser streamer. It is the one that has been out there before everybody else said that they were going to enter the advertising realm when it comes to streaming. They were the leading advertising service. And one of the things that just got no focus on Disney earnings is that for the last three quarters in a row, the advertising revenue per Hulu sub has declined. Now, that is a really bad, so this was before recessionary issues began to uh, push down advertising revenue. So what is going on there that their ad revenue per sub was declining as Hulu was the clear leader and now everybody else is going to have a ad tier as part of their offering with some great premium programming to compete with the uh, Hulu inventory. That has to be taken into account as you think about it, not to mention that all the uh, uh, either all the NBC programming is going away if Disney buys it or all the Disney programs going away if peak of uh, NBC buys it. And it will be a, a very different service in that regard. Yeah. Tom, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Tom I'm not Roger. A <laughs> well, <laughs> They think you are, so that's the way it is. <laughs> We've got some uh, breaking news here that we want to get to. Uh, a news alert on Home Depot, the company announcing a dividend and authorizing a share buyback. Seema Modi's got the details. Seema. Hey, Melissa. Home Depot authorizing a new $15 billion buyback. It comes just two days after the company reported better-than-expected earnings thanks to an increase in home improvement spending. And it also follows the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act that does impose a 1% tax on buybacks. So certainly interesting timing. You're seeing shares of Home Depot up about a half a percent here in extended trade. Mel? All right, Seema. Thanks, Seema Modi. Karen, this sounds like a big number. It's a big number, but it's a giant company. But, mm -hmm. you know, for years, this has been part of Home Depot's playbook, and they've done a great job. And obviously, we know how, how under pressure the housing sector is. But, you know, I thought their earnings this week were, were fine. And I'm long Home Depot and long Lowe's. Coming up, we're all over the after hours action. And AMAT shares on the move after reporting results will bring you the numbers next. Plus, meme trades, cryptocurrencies, and now single stock ETFs, the rise and the risks of these high vol investment funds. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. 
I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We have an earnings alert on Applied Materials shares of the chip um, equipment maker moving higher after posting better than expected earnings and revenue for its latest quarter. Let's get back to Seema Modi, who's got the details. Hey, Seema. Melissa, on the earnings call, Applied Material executives revealed some new Q4 numbers. They expect semi-systems revenue to be up 14% year-over-year in the fourth quarter and to incrementally increase gross margins through pricing adjustments and improved logistic costs. It's also slowing its headcount growth while increasing research and development spending up 10% uh, year to date. But like many semiconductor players, the zero lockdown in China did set them back. Most of its display revenue comes from China, that market there. It's one of the reasons for 2023, Applied Materials says demand is still above our ability to supply. They're working through the supply chain issues, trying to identify them, tackle those issues, and they do see output increasing over the next several quarters. Stock is up about 2% in after hours, still down about 33% from its 52-week high. Melissa? Seema, thanks. Seema Modi. Uh, Steve Grasso, what do you make of the quarter? So you know how I, I don't feel incredibly bullish about this uh, sector of, of, the, of, of stocks, but this one was in a declining trend line from January. It broke out of that at the end of July. It's trading above its 50-day and its 100-day. The only thing it has to shoot for is its 200-day moving average. I would use the 100-day, which is about 107, as a floor, buy the stock, look for a run to the 200-day as resistance, which is at 125. Let it settle in a little bit tomorrow, see how the character of the trading affects it. But I do believe they have an outsized uh, exposure to solar panels. And with the recent bill that passed through Congress, they could get, uh, reap the rewards of that. So I would look for a run at the 200-day. AMAT's its own animal, no question. And Steve was right to be cautious about semis, the whole space, many months ago. I'll say this quickly. The quarter was fine. Guidance was fine. Operating margins hung in there. I think the stock is now trades 13 times next year's numbers, which I don't want to get crazy about because if this becomes a commoditized thing, that's a problem. I would wait until see what NVIDIA has to say on the 24th just to reset this entire space because although they guided a couple weeks ago, they didn't give you the quarter. The quarter's still coming up, and there are a lot of people out there whispering that maybe they'll guide lower again. Just something to keep in mind before you go foraying into the semi-space, Melissa Lee. See what I did there? Very dramatic. Thank you. Uh, much more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. <laughs> Stocks or ETFs? Why not both? The investing craze that has some big volatility. The details next. Next. 
plus retail rep, Kohl's slashing guidance, and blaming inflation for a sales slump. So should you keep shopping? Or is it time to check out? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money, a new way to trade volatile stocks, including Tesla and NVIDIA. Single stock ETFs hitting the marketplace this summer designed to make shorting simpler for active investors. But do the risks outweigh the benefits? Let's get some answers from Tom Lydon, the vice chairman of market analytics firm Vetify. Tom, great to see you. Hi, Melissa. Why, why do we need these um, ETFs when there are the stocks themselves that you can trade or options? Yeah, short answer is uh, it's more optionality for individual investors, sophisticated traders who don't necessarily want to use all their cash that they have on the sidelines. They can get some leverage. They can also go inverse. And, you know, most investors have to fill out margins and options agreements in order to do that. It's a great way for them to hedge, but you have to watch it every day. It's also a great way to get hedging instruments for financial advisors as the market's been really volatile and the stocks that these represent are some great opportunities to pick them up off the bottom or if you're not happy about them, you can buy the short side without having to do any margin. But when you're talking about hedging, you're not talking about using the leverage products because the leverage products you would not, I mean, ostensibly, you, you really shouldn't hold them for more than a day. Am I no, right? No, you should. Yeah, you're right. So you guys were just talking about uh, chips and and earnings and things like that. So if these products, like they represent NVIDIA, if you feel like earnings are gonna go south, you can go in for a given day and on the Access NVIDIA Bear ETF 1.25 to the negative, you can get that leverage to the downside and short by using ultimately a long vehicle. Tom, are these trading vehicles to Mel's question or are they vehicles for professionals that are, you know, hedge funds that are trying to get that leverage? Because it sounds like for the average everyday investor, these could be dangerous, for lack of a better they word. Could, they could. So, Guy, you're right. It's not for the average investor, although ETFs for the most part have been. They continue to evolve to try to grab more of the marketplace. But listen, you're absolutely right. They are aggressive in nature. They have to be traded almost on a daily basis. But for some investors that are sophisticated or advisors or institutions, they come into play because it wraps everything up into one ticker. Hey, Tom, it's Steve. So uh, hey, Steve. just a couple of things, just to piggyback. The, the other issue is they're not based on, they're based on a derivative which decays. So you have the fee of the ETF, it resets every day, and you have the decay of the derivative that it's actually based on. So just to, just to piggyback what was already said though, it's gotta be a day event that you're trading, but it doesn't come with a disclaimer 
that if you hold it longer than a day, you're actually decaying your money. Well, you're right. So there's almost reverse compounding that's built into this, Steve. However, let's just say there are companies like ProShares and Direction that have had inverse and leverage ETFs out there for 10 years. Look, we all have to be responsible in what we're buying and selling. Um, and we know, yes, the SEC is looking at this. FINRA has this complex product rule out there right now under review. They would like to be able to put some guardrails on for average investors buying in their brokerage account or make them go through some type of training or make them go through um, more uh, disclosure or things like that. But ultimately, as investments advance, you've got to give credit to the average investor to do their due diligence. And, and if they're not comfortable, if they haven't looked under the hood, they should run in the opposite direction. Tom, thanks. Tom Wyden of Vetify. Um, so, Karen, again, these are single stock ETFs, some of them leveraged to varying degrees on, on volatile stocks. As a professional hedge fund manager, right. would you use these as vehicles or would you opt for other ways, like the options market, for instance? What could go wrong? Really, Missy, right? What could go wrong with this? We've seen a couple times, you know, the volatility index or whatever it was. We saw the USO, which is, I know, maybe a little different animal because it's got different... Uh, parts of the uh, oil complex but um, or oil contracts going out. I don't, it just seems like, you know, if you're a sophisticated investor who can understand the downsides of this, I would think it would be easier to create it yourself. Just my guess. Right. Tim? First of all, I mean, Tom Lydon's been a, a godfather in the ETF space a long time. Mm -hmm. I, I think the, the idea is that the ETF space continues to evolve and, and continues to dominate. And on some level, uh, the retail investor is, giving more, is given more tools that institutions have. Look, institutions can, can create baskets and options very quickly. They have the ability to single short stocks. Uh, a lot of retail investors can't even short stocks based upon uh, the, the platform they're on. Everything we've said so far, though, is absolutely true. I say, uh, buyer beware, do your work, even with main ETFs. Understand what's under the hood. These leverage ETFs, um, we've talked about them for a long time. I, I think they are dangerous. Uh, but if you know and if you are tactical and if you are in and out and you are right, um, obviously, that's what it is. It's leverage. Yeah, Grasso, you've used these, actually. I've used, yeah, I've, I've actually used these. So for as long as these, these have existed, I've used them, clients have used them. And the biggest issue is, no matter how sophisticated the institution or the trader, people don't realize, traders don't realize that they're one-day vehicles. So it decays. That is the biggest problem that I have with them. If you can tell people, you're only using these for six and a half hours during the trading day, I have no problem with it. But most people are not going to follow those instructions if they are not notified. And there's nothing on these ETFs that tell you that it's a one-day thing. All right. Coming up, the latest on Ryan Cohen's Bed Bath & Beyond sale. Shares are dropping again after hours. The details that Karen's watching ahead. But first, Kohl's cuts. The retailer's slashing guidance as rising prices hit shoppers. So now even Kohl's cash is feeling the inflation sting. We're breaking that down next when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a buzzkill on Kohl's. Shares sinking almost 8% after the retailer slashed full-year outlook during its latest earnings report. The company citing a hard-hit middle-income consumer. Here's what CEO Michelle Goss said about the updated guidance earlier on the exchange. So we are expecting the back half of the year to be more promotional as the customers looking for that value. Um, we're also facing inflationary pressures in our cost of goods and things like freight. Um, you know, how long this is going to go on, not sure, but we are doing lots of things around our business to make sure that we can navigate this period of time. Kohl's now expects full-year revenues to decline versus last year, and earnings estimates have been trimmed by more than half. Karen, this really was not a surprise to you. You know, I had a grandmother that used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. But I have a daughter who would say, Mom, say what you really think. So, you know, it wasn't about the giant miss, which we knew when they announced those earnings, no way were they going to meet those. It wasn't about the whopping inventory bloat. It wasn't about the category misses. To me, it's about a very, very pressured industry, department stores, and a management team who I don't trust, right? I think they did a horrific job selling the company and at the same time instead trying to pull their own, you know, this is our new plan and it's fabulous and misleading the shareholders. I can't get over that. So if you want to make that bet for maybe there's a, you know, a really cheap department store out there that can get it together and can survive, you got to go to Macy's or somewhere else. I just, I don't trust them. You maybe still own this. Maybe I should, you, but I can't. You, you still own this no. stuff though. Oh, you don't, you're completely out. No, I'm out. I'm completely out. Okay. Um, Tim, what do you think? Well, first of all, K Karen's been uh, noticeably uh, irritated by this story, as she should be. And, and this puts more pressure on management, right? So um, the shares are undervalued. It doesn't mean you chase them. But I, I think there's a lot of bad news and there's a lot of bad management in this. And it only sets them up that much more um, for some of the same pressure that they've been under. They can't persist in this environment. So uh, don't really love department stores, really don't like their segment. I, I think, you know, we have Macy's and Nordstrom's reporting next week. And I think they've got slightly different segments. And, and I think that's part of the story where they've been more resilient. Also, um, the, the, the inventory issues that coal is going to, coals are going through are, are, are very similar, of course, what we're seeing in many other places. The difference is this is a company that doesn't necessarily have the same ability uh, to, to, to have a footfall. They, they're just not in that position. They don't have the same liquidity. And, and this is something I think investors are focusing on. Uh, Bill Simon yesterday said that department stores have to find a reason to exist. So not only do they have their own internal, maybe management created, management enhanced issues to deal with, but they have an industry problem to deal with as well. They sell things that people do not need. You can, you can, you don't have to go there at all. And that's, a, that's a problem, Guy. Unless I mean, you you're go. returning Amazon stuff, right? Right, 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 exactly. Which, you know, I'm one of those people, I actually go to like the UPS, we chat, we, you I, know. I also UPS drop off my Amazon. Returns. Isn't that nice? Anyway. Let me put a couple numbers, uh. just, just so we understand each other. Their prior guidance for EPS was basically six and a half dollars. They guided to basically three dollars. Now, by the way, the street didn't believe them either because the consensus was $4 and they missed that. Then they took operating margins from 7.5%-ish down to 4%. I don't know what happened over that period of time, but clearly none of it was good. So to Karen's earlier point, I dig her grandmother, 
I'm sure I never met her, but I'm sure I would have. But I'm with her daughter on this one. Tell the truth. And the truth in this case hurts. Coming up. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond sinking in the after hours as a major shareholder cashes out. What the chairwoman is watching in this filing, that is next, plus another shakeup at Starbucks as its COO departs. So with another exec on the way out, how should you play the coffee chain? We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is official. Ryan Cohen's RC Ventures has sold its entire stake in Bed Bath & Beyond. The AMC GME chairman offloading the stock on Tuesday and Wednesday for prices between 18 and 30 bucks a share. He also sold his call options expiring in January. Shares of Bed Bath adding to their losses in the after hours. So, Karen, um, you've been watching this very closely. What did you see in this filing? So this filing showed all the prices that he sold. It looks to me like he made $59 million off of about $119 million investment, which is great. But really, I think it's that he made, he, he made that money off of what was a much lower base after he got into it, right? Shares really, really sold off hard after he got into it in January. And I think that... Um, you know, I think shareholders are going to be upset that, oh, he bailed on us. But this is a very, very different story now than March when he got into it. As recently as a couple of months ago, Bed Bath & Beyond was in a position to feel like they could do share buybacks. Now, I think they're getting restructuring help because their debt's trading like they're going to go bankrupt. So I don't blame him for getting out. It's a very, I mean, it's a very, very different equation now. So I know people are pissed at him. I have no I got no skin in this game at all. I don't know him. I'm just saying a little bit of caveat emptor. If you followed him in here on the idea of, oh, my God, he bought, you know, calls struck at 75. This must be great, even right. though the debt was telling you it's going bankrupt. One other thing I think is interesting, GameStop apparently on the back of this news is down $4 because people hate Ryan, I guess. I got no feelings. Never met the guy. Or they question, you know, whether his staying power in, in any of these names. And I, I agree with you. I see that how it is a very different story at this point in time for Bed Bath & Beyond. The stock is down 40% right now, Guy. An extraordinary move. No, and it's unfortunate. Again, we talked about this last night. And again, I don't think he did anything. I don't, I don't think any of us are saying he did anything illegal. My problem is it doesn't pass the sniff test. And the fact that, listen, Karen pointed this out last night. The options, if you went and looked at the filing, they were there, but somehow magically it just came to the public domain over the last couple of days when magically the stock traded up to nearly $30. And then magically, once again, he decided it was a good point to exit. I don't think my opinion, which I'm entitled to, he ever thought in his wildest dreams this stock was going to $75. What I do think, though, is he understood intuitively what's going on in the market now. Mm -hmm. And if people got their arms around that, it would be somewhat self-fulfilling that the stock would go up. That's the problem that I have. I have to say that just as sort of a, you know, mainstream media plays a role in this Absolutely. whole thing, too. So, I mean, discussion of the options uh, positions that he had that were disclosed in a 13D filing from months ago, we talked about that as well. So it's all part, we talked about it because the stock was moving. And after the stock moved, then we discussed that. Um, so it's all this sort of crazy viral thing that, that feeds on, on itself, Tim. 
Well, that's that's the world of yeah. social media, meme stocks, Reddit chat rooms, and and whatnot. But I, I it is interesting. You know, why did we have to see uh, notice of options purchases from months ago yesterday or the day before? Um, and and the the discussion that I'm hearing about, well, um, they had to restate the percentages based upon there was a different share count outstanding, and so that you know it, it equated to slightly different option positions. Like I'm not sure. Um, that that news was necessary to restate. And, and so that's where I think people are, are a little frustrated here, that that, that news came to market um, magically when, in fact, um, it wasn't necessary to have it come to market. All right, um, let's stick with retail trader favorites. AMC, one of the most active names in the options market today, but one trader is betting that the stock is headed for huge losses. Mike Coe has the action, Mike. Yeah, so uh, certainly Bed Bath & Beyond was the busiest uh, single stock option this week, and it was the busiest one today. But uh, the other uh, meme stock that continues to occupy a high slot when it comes to the single stock options activity is AMC. It ranked fifth today. We did see double the average daily put volume. And of course, a lot of retail market participants are getting involved, but it's not just retail because among the trades we saw was a purchase of over 2,000 of the September 12 puts. Those traded for 44 cents. So that could be retail, but it's high net retail for sure. Buyer of those puts betting that the weakness that some of these stocks are starting to see could infect AMC as well, and it could decline below 12 by September expiration. All right. Thank you, Mike, for that. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, another shakeup at Starbucks. How the latest departure will impact the coffee chain. We're breaking it down next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer cam. Jim is talking to the CEO of Genera. Catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the money, at the top of the hour, excuse me, on Mad Money. And another leadership shakeup at Starbucks. COO John Culver, the latest executive to leave the coffee giant. This just a year after he took on the role and just months before Howard Schultz is set to depart as CEO. Our Kate Rogers has got the details on this. Kate. Melissa, that's right. A COO at Starbucks, John Culver, will be departing the company at the end of the year, transitioning to executive advisor as of October 3rd. The company is reorganizing the leadership team, eliminating the COO role at the end of the fiscal year. Culver, as you said, has been with the company for 20 years, took over for Roz Brewer after she left for the CEO role at Walgreens. In his uh, in a letter from Howard Schultz to partners about the executive structure change, Schultz said, quote, our reinvention requires us to rethink our leadership structure to create every opportunity for our new CEO, and most importantly, to accelerate delivery of modernized and elevated experiences for our Green Apron partners and our customers. Now, that reinvention has been a very big focus for Schultz, who will also be leaving the company at the end of the calendar year. The new CEO has yet to be named, but the company is speaking to external candidates for that role. And this is the fourth exec departure in the last two years or so. We had Brewer leaving in early 2021, then former CEO Kevin Johnson in March of this year, Rossanne Williams, the EVP of North America's in June, and now John Cole. Back over to you. Major changes. Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. Steve Grasso, what do you make of Starbucks? Yeah, uh, forgetting all, all of that, uh, all the fundamentals on, I shouldn't say the fundamentals, but forgetting about the corporate shakeup, the stock has broken out of a declining trend line pretty recently. There is a scarcity value in coffee. You don't really get that many publicly traded coffee companies anymore. I would wait till it trades above the uh, 200 day moving average, which is right around $90. But technically, the 50 has popped above the 100. That's bullish. I would uh, give it a little bit of air to breathe, and I'd be a buyer above 90. 
Tim, what do you think? Well, look, the, the last quarter, we just got numbers. They, the U.S. comps were excellent. It was all on price increases. Uh, the China business was destroyed. We kind of knew that was going to happen. Some of that's all been reset. Um, the, the, the dynamic here is a combination of to what extent, uh, where are margins going for the company? That includes labor costs. Again, they've got big union issues. Uh, they just ordered that they had to rehire a bunch of uh, folks in, in Memphis and some union activists and whatnot. And I, they've created their own kind of uh, internal turmoil here. And, and I realize that some of this is going on in other places, but Starbucks, I think, uh, has, has really uh, brought some of this upon themselves. If you look at the leadership dynamic. I, I think the company, since Kevin Johnson sat in that role, um, has been a little bit rudderless. And, and if you look at, you know, they start using things about reinvention and, and whatnot, it makes you feel as if this is a company that's lost. I don't think they're that lost. Uh, but I do think that the uh, the dynamic around the around the shares is um, we still need to see that CEO in place. And right now, yeah. Howard Schultz uh, needs to name a new CEO. This is preparation for that. Yeah, you need to see what the vision is, and we don't we don't have a handle on that. So you have the internal problems, then you have the external problems. I mean, Walmart was talking about, um, you know, household incomes over one hundred thousand dollars going to Walmart now. People trading down from deli meats to cans of beans, guy. And you got to wonder. I mean, is all of this happening so you can still buy your five dollar cup of regular coffee down the street? I could say without or, equivocation, or, or Melissa. Or you just cutting that too. Beans are not part of my. Oh, I I know that. Just so, <laughs> so you should have been a better, better. You should have given me a better example. example. That he used. Yeah, but you could have changed it for me. Number one. Number two. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, but that's for farther down the road in terms of how we're going to look at the consumer things. But I'll say mm -hmm. this about Starbucks. I'm glad Tim put it up. And check out Kate Rogers' Twitter account because she's on top of it. This labor issue is not going away, and I fear it's going to get worse before it gets better. And although Starbucks at 25 times next year's numbers is cheap historically to itself, I don't think that's a metric you want to look at right now. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade, Steve. Chewy, it's up 90% in about three months. I expect a lot more upside. Try to keep it on a short leash in case it turns back around. Karen? Uh, short leash, got it, Steve. Yeah, so Ulta, name that I own, it's had a very nice run up 40 bucks in the last, I don't know, two or three weeks, earnings a week from now. But I'm gonna sell some upside 425 calls at about seven and a half because it's come so far so fast. Tim Seymour. Happy birthday to my beautiful daughter, Sky. And that Netflix discussion, streaming discussion with Tom Rogers was fascinating, as it always is. Netflix is underappreciated by the market here. Guy. Big daughter night effect. Karen brought up her daughter, daughter Tim, daughter, Sky. Yeah. Happy birthday, Sky. Slumberjay, Melms. Look at that energy. It's making the move higher again. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.